Section 5 of The Black Cat, Volume 2, Number 8, May, 1897. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Greg Giordano, The Black Cat, Volume 2, Number 8, May, 1897. Section 5 trans-saharan station fifteen m by j e pember clink clank clink clank three men crouched in the shelter of a hut made of sheets of corrugated iron they did not stir they scarcely breathed the thermometer indicated a temperature of one hundred and thirty-five degrees before the door of the hut rose a skeleton tower of iron beams it resembled the derrick of a Pennsylvania oil well. Over a wheel at the top of this structure ran a wire rope, which, descending perpendicularly, disappeared within a well-like cavity some twenty inches in diameter. The other end was coiled around a drum operated by an electric motor, which automatically started, stopped, reversed, stopped, started, up and down, up and down, moved the cable, with monotonous regularity clink clank clink clank it was the only sound that disturbed the intense suffocating stillness outside the horizon line receded to the uttermost limit of vision in all directions a level waste of yellow sand met the eye wherever it turned reflecting the almost vertical rays of the sun with an indescribable fierceness the atmosphere swam in shimmering streaks. The enormous palpitating disk of the desert was bisected by a single line of rails, which dwindled to vanishing points to the north and to the south. The rails rested on broad bases of metal, like huge inverted soup plates, which enabled the road to lie firmly upon the treacherous sand. Between the rails was placed the insulated cable which brought the electrical current to the motor. A semaphore signal, planted upright in the sand, like a contorted skeleton, a few scattered tools, some bits of piping, and abandoned pieces of machinery, completed a catalogue of objects of definite outline. The motor buzzed drowsily. Clink, 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 clink. This particularly undesirable spot upon the world's surface was marked on the map of the new Trans-Saharan Railway as Station 15M. The railway was the latest audacious engineering exploit of the French. It connected Algiers in a mathematically straight line with Timbuktu, and was expected to bring the riches of the eastern Sudan to the Mediterranean shores. Station 15M was full 400 miles north of the southern terminus, in the hottest heart of the great Sahara. Just under the line of the tropic, the three men in the hut were drilling an artesian well that, when pierced, would create an artificial oasis. The drilling apparatus was perfectly made and almost human in its intelligence. It would work for hours without below, the chief, touching a lever. Below was an old gray man, wedded to one idea the success of the Trans-Saharan. Littlefield, his assistant, was an American, young and enthusiastic. Colette, 
was a student of the technical school who acted as helper and general utility man. Ah, how infernally hot this is, muttered Colette at last, as he tried vainly to find a place where it was a degree or two cooler. But wouldn't I give for a good swim now? Keep still, there's a good fellow, expostulated Littlefield. You're kicking up this dry sand, and it won't settle again in a dog's age. Don't knock all our grub over either. The Touaregs may stop the supply train, and vegetables don't grow in this country. There, you've gone and done it. For Colette had given another roll and dislodged a pile of boxes of provisions, which, with a miscellaneous lot of clothing and instruments, came crashing down in a heap. When they had been restored to their places, Bellow awoke from a troubled slumber. He glanced at his watch, and then, pulling his coat collar up to shield his neck from the solar heat, crossed the interval between the hut and the tower. Four thousand feet, he murmured. Decidedly, in forty-eight hours, we ought to reach the water-bearing strata. By turning a lever, he reversed the electric apparatus rapidly, and the drum began to wind the wire rope. When it was full, another was deftly substituted, and after that, a third. Then the machinery stopped, and the heavy metal drill emerged from the black depths of the well, bringing with it a volume of dark earth, which, tumbling down a trough prepared for its reception, poured over the tawny desert sand. It was a curious contrast of hues. The engineer fingered the soil. It was loose and friable. He smelled it, and even tasted it. We have not yet reached the belt of clay which confines the subterranean reservoirs, he said. Once more, with a humming sound, the drill vanished into the depths. The wire rope rattled furiously as it unwound, and then the apparatus resumed its work. Clink, clank, clink, clank. When the sun declined, it was obscured by a curious, mouse-colored cloud rising from the west. Can it be a thunderstorm? asked Littlefield. Worse, answered the chief, it is a sandstorm, the terrible Samoon. I fear we are in great danger. With incredible swiftness, the devil of the Sahara advanced. Where the three men stood, a death-like stillness prevailed. The outlines of the tower seemed drawn in sepia on a background of fiery orange. Long, snaky fingers of smoke came reaching out over the sky wriggling fantastically. Then a wall of gray mist came sweeping over the desert, and the awe-stricken beholders saw the sand caught up in vast, whirling columns, a dull, booming sound, like that of breakers on hidden reefs, smote upon their ears. Inside, and close the door, shouted below. The engineers hastened into the hut and secured the door. In a moment, it seemed, the storm was upon them. The atmosphere became black as midnight. A sonorous hum, like the diapason of some mighty cathedral organ, filled all the dome of heaven. There were sounds of titanic buffetings and demoniac yells. It was as if all the ancient fiends of the Sahara had gathered to overwhelm its presumptuous invaders. Had not the hut been strongly bolted together, it would have been torn to pieces. The fiery particles hissed against its iron sides like a discharge of shot. Sand sifted through the cracks until the three men, their heads wrapped in cloths, 
were almost stifled. For a moment it seemed as though they were to be buried deep in a living grave. Then, as quickly as it came, the Samoom fled away, and the sun, now red as blood, threw his level beams across the plain. The drilling apparatus was not injured. Its delicate machinery was so protected that the sand could not reach it. Then a terrible discovery was made. Colette, his throat burning with thirst, approached the tank which contained their supply of water. He found the tap open and the tank empty. The lad gave a cry. His companions rushed to the spot. Oh, God! Wasted! he moaned. It was true. Not a drop remained. When the pile of supplies had fallen over, the tap had been knocked open, and the thirsty sand had drunk the precious liquid. If the train doesn't get here tomorrow, we shall be in a fix, observed the assistant engineer. Below shook his head. The sandstorm has blocked the rails, he said. No engine can pass until the plows have made a path for it. That will take many hours, and a man cannot live many hours in the Sahara without water. Let us walk to the next station, suggested Colette. It is two hundred miles. If one of us tried it, he would perish before he had accomplished one quarter of the distance, replied the great chief. His eyes turned toward the drill. There is one hope, then, cried the American, following the direction of his gaze. If the drill reaches the water-bearing levels in time, we shall be saved. The old engineer bowed his head silently. Clink, clank, clink, clank. The long night had dragged away, and the garish sun shot into the view once more. The three men, haggard, gasping, with parched throats, avoided meeting one another's gaze. The drill had gnawed its way deeper into the bowels of the earth, but there were no signs of water. The frightful agonies of prolonged thirst had set in. The victims neglected to note the passage of time, but lay in a sort of stupor. At intervals, the chief tested the borings. It will soon be over, one way or the other, he whispered to his assistant. Towards the middle of the afternoon, Colette collapsed, with all the symptoms of violent sunstroke. His face became almost black. His pulses beat furiously. Water, he muttered with cracked lips. His companions turned away, then followed delirium. He murmured of running streams and splashing fountains. Death came quickly, when the thermometer marks 135 degrees on the Sahara. The poor lad suddenly sprang to his feet, and staggering from the hut, he put his palms together above his head, and dived, as one dies from a river bank, headlong into the black shadow of the tower, streaming across the sand. When Littlefield reached him, he was dead. The sun completed its circuit and sank like a plummet toward the western horizon. Below, and his assistant feebly tried the boring again. The drill was withdrawn with some difficulty. When it came to the surface, it was coated with stiff clay, cool to the touch. The old engineer pointed to it. He could not speak. It was a question of a few hours now. Below, completely exhausted, threw himself down on the sand at the door of the hut and seemed to sleep. Littlefield, lying flat on his back, tried to gaze through the gray depths of the zenith. Suddenly, far above, 
He perceived a black spot that hovered and circled in a wide orbit. It seemed to be watching intently. A sickness of utter horror and despair came upon the young man. He approached his chief and touched the shoulder of the still form. There was no response. Below, he exclaimed with hoarse emphasis. No answer. He passed his hand over the temple, fringed with gray locks. The flesh was chill and harsh. The heart had ceased to beat. The old engineer had passed away, as peacefully as a baby goes to sleep, within its mother's encircling arms. The drill never stopped. Clink, clank, clink, clank. When Littlefield opened his eyes again, the lid seemed to grate heavily upon the balls. He looked up. The gray sky was gone, and the odious black spot with it. It was night, and over the velvet depths of space, the imperial tropic stars were passing in majestic procession. They shone with wonderful brilliancy. The young engineer gazed drowsily at them. He felt strangely comfortable as he lay there upon the sand. The tormenting thirst had ceased. He did not even feel surprised when he found that his limbs had lost the power of motion. Life seemed concentrated in a small area of the brain, just behind the eyes. He perceived nothing for those glorious, wheeling stars, some red, some blue, some of a yellow luster. Then came fleeting visions of a far distant landscape, a New England house, white clapboarded, with prim green shutters, great elm trees overarching, and the continual gurgle of a brook flowing underneath a plank bridge. All the odorous sweets of June were in the air, and he was walking up the path, a slight girl stood at the gate and stretched out her hands to him, smiling angelically, with brown eyes that looked clearly into his own. Harry, she said, and her voice sounded like the faraway tinkle of a silver bell. You have come at last. Then the light went out like a glowing coal, and only the great calm desert stars looked down pityingly. Clink, clank clink clank but when the day came again the great drill had ceased its clanking in those hours of darkness the waters under the earth liberated from their prison had burst with impetuous force through the vent tossed the machine aside and the first rays of the sun were reflected on the ebullient flood that bubbled up from the well gushed in rainbow spray around the iron posts of the tall derrick filled with hollows beside the track, with crystal pools, and then hastened by the three dark, silent forms that heeded it not, before plunging once more into the sands that gave it birth. End of Section 5 Read by Greg Giordano Newport Ritchie, Florida